Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast, guys. We're here with Dr. Michael Ray, uh, chiropractor and owner-operator of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic. So thanks for coming on the podcast with us today, Mike. Yeah, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. So the first question, I mean, obviously, you know, the the with the op- owning and operating of the performance clinic and that sort of thing, and as well as working as a chiropractor, and I know you personally, so I know as a chiropractor, you don't do any sort of physical manipulation. So can you kind of tell us what the role of a chiropractor is and what you, what you do as a chiropractor? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as the easiest kind of short answer is as chiropractors, we're just healthcare professionals. And then I kind of silo us to musculoskeletal healthcare professionals. Um, and I think that's probably as our role continues to evolve in the healthcare field where we'll kind of further take hold and continue to operate within. And so the, the nice part about being a chiropractor in the U S is we have, um, physician level status, but we also have direct access. So we can consult on a case, use evaluation and management codes, ICD 10 CPT codes. So we can fully have direct access consult as primary on a case, um, hopefully related to musculoskeletal healthcare stuff and then intervene as well. So we're able to utilize things like nine, seven, one, zeros, nine, seven, one, one, two, which are like your standard therex codes and neuromuscular reeducation codes. So from that standpoint, um, I think we're very well positioned to be able to help folks who are dealing with either acute or persistent, you know, musculoskeletal stuff like sprains, strains, post-operative situations, tendinopathies, acute persistent pain situations like low back pain as well. So I'm going to ask you, what is kind of the main difference between um, someone who practices like a chiropractor and then someone who's like a maybe sports medicine doctor or something that went to medical school? Because I think there might be some confusion between what the different roles are there. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a good question as well. well. So we don't prescribe medication. We don't do injections, uh, nothing like that. No surgeries. So we are completely... um, non-pharmaceutical based would be the best way to put it. So like if you saw a sports medicine doc, depending on if they're a non-op or operative like ortho or something, that's, you know, they're able to prescribe medications, they're able to do injections and invasive surgery if needed. So that'd be the biggest difference. We're more of the kind of conservative management, which is a, uh, I'll use that phrase loosely, just given what you have no idea what that could mean, depending on who you're talking to when it relates to conservative management. And then also a follow-up question on that. Um, so as Jason discussed, you don't do any manipulative medicine personally. However, when anyone like thinks of a chiropractor, they go to a chiropractor, they're kind of going for that manipulative aspect. Whenever someone has like any pain or any strain or anything like that, they want to go there and like get popped back into place, quote unquote. And um, so kind of how did you get to the point of not using manipulative medicine and what do you do instead? Yeah. So... 
uh, it was an evolution for sure. And it's always a continuous evolution in clinical practice. Like I, I imagine I'll have very different opinions in 10 years and that's kind of the whole point. Um, but I can say, you know, growing up, I went to see chiropractors and physical therapists when I had musculoskeletal issues. And, you know, I always had a good experience with that process. And then coming out of my master's in exercise science, I knew I wanted to go on and get a clinical doctorate. And so um, I had a, a friend who was a chiropractor. We were chatting. And even then, I was already like skeptical of some of the things that were said within the chiropractic world. But it was phrased to me from the standpoint of like, hey, you can go get, you know, this piece of paper that's going to give you a lot of affordances within the healthcare world to kind of go out and practice how you will uh, or you want and kind of make those decisions on your own. So I'd say that was really the point where I started to like realize like I have affordances with this degree to figure out what do I think is best to do in clinical practice. Um, and so I, I didn't ever really start out in clinical practice with joint manipulation. So I never had to like take that away. Um, and, and not just joint manipulations, but passive modalities in general. Like I experimented in school with stuff. I took continue education stuff like rock tape and ART and stuff like that. And then I was fortunate to get surrounded by some really good mentors. Um, I joined like clinical athletes and met a lot of good people that are still friends today. They really started challenging like my thought processes about stuff as far as like the efficacy of interventions and their utilization. And so I realized like, oh, okay, you know, I need to look at what does the data say about this stuff? And then how do I integrate research evidence into clinical practice? And, you know, what does evidence-based practice even mean? And so once I started down that path, I realized like, you know, there's not a lot of utility for these things outside of finding very kind of low quality uh, evidence of saying like this may be slightly better at best than placebo like contextual effects or is not any better than placebo like contextual effects. So I started to really struggle uh, with the idea of like, let me go work for someone else who's going to fit me into the box you're talking about for passive modalities and then want to uh, bill out for that. So I really started struggling with that thought process. So I opened my own place where I could have the freedom to practice and not have to necessarily worry about that. And I think as like more people kind of go this route of evidence-based practices we've seen since the 90s, there's going to be more of a shift in the profession. Like we're already seeing it. Um, there's even people coming out of school or in school younger than me that have already seen the things that took me, you know, multiple years to come to conclusions with that are ahead of the game, so to speak, that are kind of realizing they can practice differently. So I think as time goes on, the chiropractic profession will continue to shift from this, I'm a passive modality interventionalist based person and take on more of a, a musculoskeletal healthcare professional role who has affordances of uh, options for interventions and then realizes how to weight the efficacy of each and when are they applicable and not applicable. I think that answers your question, hopefully. Oh yeah, that's, that's a fantastic answer. I think, you know, that clears up a lot of things that even, you know, questions I would have in that situation of, you know, like in another question I, I was thinking about asking you is, you know, physical therapists and chiropractors are, are seen, I think, by the general population in a similar lens, you know, with, uh, in terms of doctors of, you know, musculoskeletal, physical medicine, those things. How would you say, is there a difference really in terms of, you know, how a physical therapist should practice versus how a chiropractor should practice? Or do you view them as two separate degrees that should ultimately practice very similarly? Yeah, there's a lot of layers to the title conversation. Like I'm pretty open about not being a fan of titles just because of the hand issues in which people have perceived authority positions and then say like, oh, you should listen to me and do X because I'm Dr. So-and-so. 
But I also realized like within a society, we have titles for a purpose because it kind of directs you how to get to information quickly. We just hope that the clinician has some type of epistemic responsibility to disseminate out best current evidence on stuff. So with that in mind, um, I don't really look at us different outside of having a different label. We could have a very like cynical discussion about marketing and campaigning and even at the policy level, as far as like federal government level and then state level about really just trying to say we're different in order to get pieces of the pie of the of the healthcare pie. And that's that is what it is. You know, it's really unfortunate that that's the state of healthcare. But I have friends. Uh, I'm fortunate to have friends across the board in all various specialties of healthcare. And you realize like uh, that's not unique to chiropractors and PT. Uh, people are uh, trying to demonstrate their their need within the healthcare system, and then also on top of that, getting a piece of the financial pie, so to speak. So, I think if we're going to just talk about chiros and PTs, they're very very similar. It comes down to ultimately your allowable scope of practice. So, if you're in a state as a PT who lets you have direct access, then you probably practice very similarly to most chiropractors. The other differencing uh, differing part would be whether you're allowed imaging rights, which I have very nuanced opinions on the utilization of imaging, but something chiropractors are allowed is we have imaging rights. You can also do, uh, you can usually order like blood work and urine analysis as well as a chiropractor. So uh, that was something that because we have physician level status at the federal level, that gives us a lot more affordances. The only difference is you can get a little bit uh, hamstrung, so to speak, because like st- things like Medicare will say, like we only cover joint manipulations from a chiropractor. So if you have a Medicare patient coming to your clinic, they're like, well, why is this all out of pocket? And it's like, because they've only said they're going to cover this one service from us, even though we're capable of doing all these other things. So there's a lot of layers to this discussion. Um, and a lot of it comes down to like a liable scope of practice and then what's reimbursements like for insurance companies. But I think, Overall, looking at the two professions, they should be, and this goes for any healthcare professional uh, within the musculoskeletal world, be practicing very similar as far as consulting on a case, deciding what variables actually matter in that case, how meaningful are they, how do they fit with the patient's context, and then how does that influence recommendation and management? Yeah, I I would agree. You know, I think that's kind of what I was thinking your answer would be, you know, not to, you know, put words in your mouth or anything, but that's the the thought I would have is, you know, if, if everyone's working together in the same realm, you would think that if everyone's using what we would view as evidence-based practice, which again, is kind of a nebulous term sometimes, but you would think that the practice would ultimately reflect that and they would kind of be more similar than they are different outside of maybe some of the minutia uh, in terms of, you know, legalities and specific modalities and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ideally, we're all kind of following the evidence. I mean, EBP is very much a almost like a hashtag at this point on social media. That's pretty, pretty frustrating because you start having conversations with people and you realize like, oh, okay, like you may not actually have the understanding of what this means uh, to the level that you thought you did. And then maybe usually what I see people really struggle with, especially teaching seminars for clinicians for the past several years is we have this idea of like, oh, I should read research evidence, but there's still this major gap of like, I read this really well conducted randomized controlled trial that gives me an idea of like, 
how is an intervention going to function in the best possible circumstances in a controlled environment? But I struggle with understanding how I have external validity. So how do I take that study and apply it to the person in front of me? And that's really where the disconnect is. And then you hear all these fallacious arguments, like I can find a study to support anything. So people don't really understand, like, how do I assess quality of evidence? Do you think that, you know, one of the frustrations I have in terms of just the evidence-based practice kind of conversation is that I feel like a lot of the times it's not even that the study is bad, but it's the point of like, why are we asking this question? Or like the the question that we're asking is missing the boat. Like we're focusing on the tree instead of the forest in terms of like patient treatment or philosophy and how we treat patients. Yeah. I think there's a, a huge disconnect in the research world and then clinical practice, unfortunately. And you even see it in like how studies are conducted and then how people interpret those studies and then the meaningfulness of those findings. And then how does that influence clinical practice? And you see a lot of lines of inquiry where people will say, well, yeah, that study wasn't supportive, but we just need to keep looking into it more. And you always, the like catch line, right, is like more research needed. And then the usual accompaniment with that is like higher quality research needed prospectively over time. And we never get it. And we keep seeing like these really low quality studies that get conducted or a high quality study that never gets followed up. Um, and it's oftentimes on just modalities in which, especially in musculoskeletal healthcare, where we're regardless of title, almost always put in the position of interventionalist. Um, I have a lot of like PMR friends and we talk about this as well. And it's like, well, we've looked at this idea of like instruments assisted soft tissue manipulation, or we've looked at this idea of like kinesio tape or ultrasound or laser for decades. It's not that we just haven't found, we haven't looked at it enough or conducted a, a good trial on it. It's we've literally looked at this so many times. We keep coming up with the same answer. And then we followed up with, well, they could have done this differently in the study. And at some point we have to say like, hey, stop taking you know funding dollars. That's the same repetitive question. That's not advancing the field. And then B, just realize like, maybe we shouldn't be doing that in clinical practice. Maybe it's time mm-hmm. to just move on. Yeah, it's I mean, funny that you mentioned PM&R. I'm actually going into PM&R. That's what I'm applying into for residency. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so we'll definitely have a lot of overlap in terms of practice at some point and lots of discussions. And hopefully during my career, I can start to asking the right questions and then actually guiding research towards that way. But we want to shift a little bit gears back away from the evidence. We'll talk about that later on. It's a little bit more of the nitty gritty. But we want to always start off our, our podcast um, kind of asking our guests what preventive medicine means to them. I know for, um, when it comes to chiropractors, a lot of people just go to them when something's wrong. Um, but there still always is a preventive aspect to pretty much every part of healthcare. So to you, what does preventive medicine mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I know I'm currently reading a book called medical nihilism. That's excellent so far, but I know it's going to influence my answer now compared to say like a month ago. Um, and they talk about uh, Jacob is the author's name. I'm blanking on his last name. I think it's like Staganga. Um, and he talks about a concept of gentle medicine, which I like a lot. And so I would think preventative would probably fit there under the umbrella of gentle medicine in which I don't really think of things from a prevention standpoint. I think more from a risk reduction. Like I think it's really hard to actually prevent things in our life just given how we live in a dynamic environment and so on and so forth. So it's more of like, what factors can we control within our environments and our world and within ourselves to kind of affect our idea of health 
it would obviously need to define health and then probably also to define disease, but we don't have to get into that. And so I think from a totality of evidence standpoint, that would mean like what as I as an individual can do to take care of myself, to continue to function at the level I want to function to on life. We don't have um, a ton of data for things outside of like, oh, you know, you probably should be physically active on a regular basis on most days more than not. You should probably have a healthy caloric intake to meet your activity demands um, without going too far into excess on a regular basis. Um, And you could obviously like get more into that as far as like different types of macronutrients and stuff. And then uh, you should probably have good sleep quality and quantity. So like making sure you wake up well rested and you feel as though um, you're getting like anywhere from six to nine hours per day, whatever works best for you. And then you should have good stress coping mechanisms in place. So like, how do I handle uh, life curveballs? How do I handle uh, work stress? How do I handle financial stress? And that's like, to me, when I think of preventative or risk reduction in this context, it's those things. Those are the things that I can directly influence and have control over. And then hopefully be surrounded by, by healthcare professionals or a healthcare team that fosters me going out and doing those things. I just want to throw out there that that's probably one of the most put together answers that we've had for that. (laughs) You talked about not only what you think preventive medicine is in terms of risk reduction, but also added the action steps on top of that. So whoever's listening to this, that's a wrap. We're done with this episode. (laughs) We can go go home now. We're done. This should be our last episode ever recorded. Exactly. It's all set right there. So, uh, on to the next question, which I know you might hate answering this question because it's the question itself might be a little bit reductionist, but what is pain? What is pain and how do we, you know, just, yeah, go, go for that one. Well, I would feel bad if I didn't plug the San Diego pain summit. The, I presented for them uh, last month and that, that in essence is the question I attempted to answer over an hour. Um, and, and it would take probably a semester long course to feel like I even like scratch the surface to try to answer that question, which for the listeners, if you're like, it's just what is pain, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, I probably would have agreed like, you know, five to 10 years ago, but today I think it's much harder for me to answer it. So I can tell you simplistically, simplistically and linguistically, pain is a word that was provided to us by society that we use to attach to our lived experiences. And that's about uh, the easiest and most concise answer I feel comfortable giving. The word is then made malleable at the individual level. So then the individual through their lived experiences can decide when is that word applicable to my lived experiences. And it becomes really murky very quickly because in clinical practice, we're placed in this position of helping people make sense of their lived experiences, one in which can be pain. And we're more or less in the position of just ruling situations out, right? Like you create your differential diagnosis, uh, low back pain is an easy discussion and say, you know, well, it's not acute fracture post-trauma. It's not uh, an infection like osteomyelitis. Uh, You're not like an in-hospital patient and we had that occur. It's not a secondary occurrence of cancer with metastasis. It's not uh, progressive neurological symptoms where you're suddenly like having difficulties stopping and starting bowel and bladder uh, function. And so, and you're put in this position of like, well, it's none of these things, which are only like one to 4% of cases. So the good news is like your experience that you're labeling as painful doesn't warrant any further investigation from a healthcare standpoint. And instead, it just means that we need to figure out how to give you tools to kind of work through this experience and move on. Where it can get really complicated is 
both as a society and as clinicians is we try to explain pain to folks. And we don't really try to answer the what is pain question. We try to answer the why am I in pain question as clinicians. And I think that's really where we have a lot of missteps is because in school we're not taught to ask the ontological question of like, what is pain? Uh, we're more focused on trying to answer why is this person in pain? I think if we spent more time on answering what is pain, that would help us answer the why question. Because up to this point, we've made up a lot of fallacious reasons of why we think people are in pain and then tried to validate a lot of not so great interventions because of that. Yeah, the question, what is pain, ends up, I think, being a little bit more philosophical in nature versus going into like the actual medicinal aspect of it and trying to help people out with their actual pain that they're experiencing. So I think a lot of people, when they talk about pain, what they want to know about is um, kind of when does this pain matter? Um, Like a bunch of people would come in and they'd be experiencing pain. Some people are like, oh, it's just this. I can, that's whatever. Um, I'll get better. Then there's other people who might think of that same pain and think that something's wrong because historically some people might have been saying that pain is the signal that something is wrong in your body. And some people just have a much lower threshold for thinking, oh, something's wrong. I need to go seek care versus other people have a much higher threshold for saying, oh, I guess it's a, it'll be all right. It'll go in a day or two. So kind of what is the point um, in your um, practice, I guess, where you try to either intervene or say that people should come in for their pain? Is there a specific point or is that also yeah, relative? That's a great question. Um, I think if you're worried about your experience that you're labeling as painful, it's time to go talk to someone because we want to find some insight into your situation, kind of help you make sense of what's happening and then decide, is there something we actually need to do? I think as clinicians, you know, uh, the popular thing to do today is to kind of rail against biomedicine and talk about biopsychosocial approach, which I get and and I'm a proponent of to an extent. But I think we're always going to be placed into the position of when we're trying to help you make sense is decide medically, is there anything ongoing that we need to be concerned with that if we didn't intervene, we're not going to have the prognosis or outcomes that we're looking for as far as you going on and living the life you want to be able to live. I don't really see a way out of us getting out of that position because a person um, is going to want to know why am I experiencing pain and what needs to be done about it to what you were saying. And so I think that's where the clinician can come in and start ruling things out and saying, you know, we're in a good position because there isn't anything clinically going on that we need to directly address. Now, that doesn't say you're just like, you know, this doesn't matter and validate them and get out of my office. You may spend time with them, like multiple conversations, because these things can be complex for people to work through. Um, And then even doing things like what we call guided behavioral experiments, which is in essence just rehab, right? Like therapeutic exercise, Um, because it's, it's really hard if you've bought into the idea that anytime you have an experience you label as painful, there's something wrong and that's a problem, then we're going to have to peel back those layers over time. You know, it's there's no way typically I can have a conversation with someone and change their beliefs about their lived experiences within a single you know hour long discussion with them. It's going to be a process over time. Yeah, I, yeah that's a that's a fantastic answer as well. Um, you know, in that same kind of along that same, you know, uh, way of thinking, you know, I know, you know, from my little bit of reading, I'm nothing compared to, to yours by any stretch, but um, it seems that our self narrative and contextual factors that surround the pain experience are very important to the overall outcome and how someone is going to perceive what they're feeling. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? You know, yeah. what are contextual factors? What is narrative and how do they influence what we're feeling? Yeah. Um, 
so self narratives come from a lot of places. Ultimately, this gets at uh, learning, right? Like how do we as a member of society learn about the world we find ourselves in? And so the kind of two primary ways are direct and indirect learning. Direct would be, I went out and did something in my world and had this experience and I label it X, Y, or Z. Indirect would be someone told me something or I've observed someone else doing something. And in the context of pain, usually where this relates is like uh, oftentimes, especially growing up with children, is they're going to see someone do something and then they have a response to that something. And then we have various words to assign like pain to that something that they've done. What can happen um, as far as from a clinical standpoint is someone can think like, and I need to give context to this just to make it relatable. But someone can think like, oh, I bent over and picked something up or I was pulling weeds one weekend felt a pop in my back, had low back pain. And now I think I've damaged or harmed my spine or something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed because of this experience. So they come into the clinician and the clinician inevitably is going to do imaging, uh, which is unfortunate in most scenarios. It's not warranted. Um, and so the imaging will find something most likely, right? Uh, just because we are human beings and we have biological variation, but we also have aging that occurs with, uh, with living. And so I talk about those things as like age adaptations and experience-based adaptations. So like experience-based would be, uh, I was a gymnast all of my life. And so I may have some spinal adaptations like spondylolisthesis because I was a gymnast all of my life, which we are put in the position of then trying to decide like how much does that finding matter in their case. But if I was a clinician who wasn't up to date on kind of what we're realizing about um, pain in general, which I hate the phrase pain science, but what we're learning about pain and then how does that fit with biomedicine? If you're not up to date on this stuff, you're not looking at like base rate findings in asymptomatic populations, looking at necessary interventions to get to the outcomes we want. You know, is there efficacy for this intervention? Is there more risk to it than benefit? If we're not able to do those things, then I may look at someone's imaging after that acute onset low back pain from pulling a weed and say, yeah, you know, you've got L4, L5, spinal degenerative disc disease. You got osteophytes growing. You have disc space narrowing. You have foraminal encroachment. You might have central canal spinal stenosis. Like the list can go on on this radiographic report, especially as the population ages that we're talking to. And so then I make a big deal out of it. I say, you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. You should be careful bending over with your back. Try to make sure you don't have a flexed spine. Make sure your spine's neutral. And then I discharge you and out into the world you go. Well, the questions we have to think about here is how did my narratives influence your interoception, which is how do you view your own body? How did my narratives influence your exteroception? How do you view the world around you? And then how does it influence your affordances? So how do you view yourself now? How do you view the world around you? And how do you view your ability to act within that world? If I gave you a bunch of problems with your spine, there are normative aging adaptations and experience adaptations, and you go back to try to pull weeds in your garden, how do you think that's going to go for you? Are you going to be confident in your ability to go do that? Or are you going to be concerned about your spine the entire time, thinking you're potentially fragile and incapable and you shouldn't move? And then if you think pain equals bad equals harm equals damage, you're going to be more likely to avoid engaging that activity. Now, I don't want to speak in absolutes. We also see kind of a spectrum of how people react to these things. On the opposite end, you can have someone say, I don't really care about my experience. I'm going to pull weeds for six hours straight. And if I can't walk afterwards, it doesn't matter. So this isn't the people hear this information and they immediately avoid. It's a kind of a spectrum effect. Others are going to go on and, and over engage the activity. We need to pull them back. Hopefully that makes sense.
Definitely. I think the million dollar question here though, is that everything we're talking about is evidence-based, correct? However, whatever we're talking about is nuanced and it seems like any discussion that you're going to have with a patient is going to take a while. And in the current landscape, it seems that patients don't want to wait a while. Either number one, they see that there's, there's this new intervention that you can do and then all of a sudden they'll be fixed or they just don't have the patience to like kind of undergo that process of kind of understanding their interoception, their exteroception and everything else that you just talked about. So how do you kind of approach and balance that between needing to explain to a patient um, all of these different contextual factors that we've just discussed and the patient either just wanting a quick fix or not having the patience and the like, maybe being able to visit you for multiple um, visits to go through that? Yeah, this is a good question. You have to um, adapt your narratives and your engagement to the individual in front of you. So it's easy to be on podcasts or publicly speaking and people want generalities. And it's really hard to give because we're individuals as human beings. So I have to adapt my narratives and the level of information that I'm providing based on their personal interests. Some people may come in and just want to know, like, why am I having low back pain? What needs to be done about the situation? In that regard, that's pretty straightforward. Like, you have this occurrence. Here's what you need to do about it. We need to keep you active to tolerance, avoid bed rest. Medication is unnecessary, generally speaking. Um, there's no need to investigate with imaging. And so we kind of move on. O'Keefe et al. would say having compassionate confrontation for misinformation while educating um, and providing guidance. And so I do one-off consultations in those scenarios for folks all the time. And some people may respond very positively to it. And typically speaking, when it comes to quick fixes, I have yet to be in a position, for the most part, there's probably a couple of outliers in which people were angry at me for saying something wasn't necessary and they didn't need to spend money on it. That's, that's pretty quite rare. If someone comes in and they're like, well, I think I need this. I'm like, no, we actually have no reason to do that. And in fact, the reasoning that you've said that tries to validate that is, is not a great reasoning. They're usually actually reassured they don't have to spend money on that. And they don't need to see me twice a week for the next rest of their life. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at Prevent Pod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think to kind of piggyback off that, do you feel like, you know, obviously in all realms of, you know, in, in terms of in the clinic, whether it's, you know, specifically with, um, you know, musculoskeletal or, you know, primary care or anything really, um, the ability to adapt to a diverse patient population that includes different levels of education, right? So the conversation we're having right now is full of nuance and complexities, right? How do you make that information available and understandable to someone who may not have, you know, a college level education or even a high school level education. How do you make yeah. these complex realities simple enough to, to go and, and put in, into practice? Yeah. If, if I'm wanting to change your beliefs on something, it does me no good to talk at a level that you don't understand or you're not comprehending. So I start uh, quite basic and then kind of see where the conversation goes. Uh, my general template is basically asking questions like, what do you think is going on? Has this happened before? And if so, what did you do? What do you think needs to be done right now? And so we kind of build the discussion from those types of questions. I ask very open-ended questions and see where we go. If it gets to the point where someone's kind of savvy and they're like, you know, I heard that my brain is the output of pain. 
What do you think about that? Then we go down that rabbit hole. If it's just to the point of like, you know, I was told previously that my hips misalign, you know, and I need a joint manipulation. What are your thoughts about that? Then we go into that conversation. I actually say as little as possible in consultations and kind of see where the conversation goes. And then I, if I need to get in more in depth, I do. But when someone poses a question like, what do you think is going on? It could just be simply as, yeah, it sounds like you have some low back pain and stop there. And I usually look and see, you know, are they looking at me like, what's up with this guy? Or, yeah, who right. is this guy? And I'm like, all right, I guess we need a little bit more of a conversation here. But if I satisfy with that response, then I just move on. Like, there's, there's no need. That's fair. That's fair. So one thing we've, we, uh, have done for the last couple episodes is a little bit of myth busting as it regards to whatever the topic is. So like last, our last episode we had with a nutrition professor and we did some nutrition myth busting. So if you don't mind, we're going to have you, uh, potentially bust some common misconceptions or myths as a result, as it relates to pain. So yeah. uh, first one, uh, we'd like to, cause it seems like it's a very common one. That's, you know, a common belief that people seem to hold is that back pain is dangerous most of the time. What do you yeah. think? Typically, no. Um, and I wouldn't even talk in the context of dangerous. Um, but about one to four percent of cases have some type of underlying etiology that I should be concerned with, which is what I was naming off earlier. The majority of the time outside of that, which are very minute cases, that it's nothing to be overtly concerned about. And in fact, the less we worry about it, uh, the experience and the more we kind of move forward and live our lives, the better off we're going to be. All right. The second one is someone comes in, they have a super tight, like right trap and they think they have a trigger point and want you to do like a trigger point release or whatever, or something like that. Is that, is there any validity to that or not? No, no. Despite the popularity of doing like trigger point injections or people doing scraping or any other number of things. Um, there's, there's no diagnostic validity for myofascial trigger points. And in fact, when you, when you look at the data, um, at like inter and intra rate of reliability for actually finding these mythical things. Uh, it's not good. It's typically no better than a coin flip. So then I don't know why you're trying to validate an intervention to treat something that we don't even have data to say it's not only does this not exist, but then it's demonstrated to have a risk greater than um, benefit of the risk being higher of having this issue necessitating intervention of just, rather than just leaving it alone. So even if we were able to say, yes, this exists. Okay, cool. Lots of things exist that we can put labels on. What's the outcome of having X? Is there a risk to having X or is this a benign condition in which we can just completely leave alone? So we've not even asked these questions or investigated to answer them. And so one of the popular, I think, ways that people sidestep the reality of the evidence not really supporting as interventions targeted at trigger points or even their their existence in general is oh well you know they don't have my hands they don't I, they can't you know i yeah. can feel more than some other clinicians can feel like that how do you how do you answer that or or i guess have a rebuttal to that sort of a, an answer I always think of like the meme, like magic hands, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can fool yourself to believe all sorts of things. You know, that's human nature. We have a lot of cognitive biases and fallacious reasoning built in. If I have a sunk cost issue that I sank $150,000 into my education to say I'm a doctor and I'm capable of feeling these things, even though I'm not, then that's a really hard thing to move someone away from. 
Um, and that's a, that's a process and typically an uncomfortable process, especially if you spend a lot of money on it. So it depends if I'm talking to them and they're genuinely curious and having a discussion on the topic, then I'm willing to engage it. If they just seem dogmatic and, um, just not willing to listen, then I just don't engage the conversation. Uh, but we know like if you take the time to look at the data that you can't, uh, palpation is basically shit in this context and it's not very meaningful. We shouldn't utilize it to then validate, like I need to, you know, dig my elbow in you or something. All right. So the third myth we have going is, um, pain is bad, but people want to go through life thinking that anytime they feel pain, it's bad and that they shouldn't live with pain. Is there, is that a myth or a fact that they should live pain-free? Yeah, I think it's a myth. I, I think personally, people seek us out for more disability and suffering. So a lot of people never even see us in clinic who experience what they would label as painful. And they're like, yeah, it's part of life and move on. I think when it reaches a point, their experience reaches a point that they feel like they're suffering. They're not able to, you know, as human beings, we are what we believe in the behaviors we engage in. If I take things away from you that you think you should be able to do, then we're going to automatically assume you're suffering at that point. And so that's when usually people are seeking out consultation. The word pain just happens to oftentimes be attached to that discussion. But you can tell like um, it's such and when you when you do consultations with patients, you're like, well, can you describe your experience for me? Well, it's painful. I can't count the number of times I've had those discussions. So people really struggle in like making sense of when using that word is quote unquote appropriate, the meaning of the word. And that's usually where we get into things like metaphors and similes and then how that meaning influences their understanding. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I think, you know, and definitely, you know, you look at some of the, you know, I, I truly believe that there are obviously, you know, it's socially learned phenomenon and cultural differences are at play here too, when it comes to expectations of pain, you know, and, and I think that's reflected when you look at some of the data of opioid use post surgical procedure, yeah. uh, as it pertains to first world countries across the world. And, you know, you look at the United States and we're, we're leaps and bounds using opioids for procedures way more than some of these other countries with that we would consider first world countries at a similar level of healthcare. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, part of that is the expectation in, in the United States is that we should not feel pain and that we need to do everything possible to avoid pain, you know, in any circumstance. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely a nuanced answer for sure, but I definitely agree that, you know, there. Like we kind of alluded to earlier, maybe there's a point where pain becomes pathologic. And you, I think you've recently been doing like a series of uh, free form answers or Q&A on your Instagram, uh, basically asking people, is pain a disease? Yeah. And yeah. what have, what have uh, you seen in that regard in terms of what are people saying? It depends. Uh, and a lot of it depends on like the person's, uh, which is cool to see because it could be someone who's, you know, quote unquote, general population. And it could be someone who's like legitimately looking into pain research. Um, and I, the argument that usually emerges is people want to dichotomize the lived experience, so acute versus persistent, and then argue that if it, we label it as persistent, then there's reasoning to have it called a disease. If you follow the International Association for Study of Pain, that's exactly what they're kind of rallying and trying to champion at the policy level is is labeling persistent pain as a disease. And ICD-11 reflects that. And you have primary persistent pain and secondary. Um, and they kind of go through, if you're familiar with the classification system for headaches, it's the same exact thing, but replicated throughout um, anything that we label as persistent pain, which the only marker for that is just 
pain after three months, which they fully admit is just an arbitrary label. The hope is at that level that, um, A, it would validate people who have pain throughout their lives uh, persistently and reoccurrent. And I'm, I question that because I think we've struggled to validate patients in clinical practice anyways, well before now we have an ICD-11 code to utilize. Um, I think stigmatization will consistently be an issue. I think medical gazing will consistently be an issue as far as just like objectifying the patient in front of you. Um, I don't think these labels are going to suddenly change that. The hope is, is that at the policy level and the research level that you can then kind of acquire funding dollars to specifically look at persistent pain. And then the validation of the label of ICD-11 then validates your experience, which means it will influence the treatments that you can receive. But even at that level, the quote unquote treatments, the best evidence we have is instilling a better understanding of someone's lived experience and instilling behavioral responses that help them do the things they want to do in life. It's not, we don't have, um, when we start talking about diseases, like is this targeting a causative uh, factor related to disease? And this is why I said earlier, we would have to define disease and health. And that's actually not an easy undertaking uh, for the medical world. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts about how to define a disease and how to define health. But it, is an intervention specifically intervening on some type of causation mechanism related to leading to the symptomatology of the disease. And we don't have, uh, to my knowledge, very supportive data for persistent pain situations where we've found this issue to influence directly with some type of like pharmaceutical. We have people that are looking into things like neuroinflammation, but I don't think the data is there yet to say this is specifically how we target this and this is specifically the causative factor of persistent pain. And I think because uh, what people are realizing is philosophy is a big part of this. Um, and in fact, it's kind of the, the tree in which science is built off of, right, is lived experiences. We struggle to define an experience and we just str we struggle to make sense of all of the variables that are influencing our lived experiences, which is why you see a lot of people who get into pain research start going down the philosophy rabbit hole, start going down consciousness rabbit holes. It's because if we want to understand why we're labeling a lived experience as we are, you have to understand consciousness. And we really suck at that, uh, to my knowledge right now. And so th th these are all the like, layers to the discussion of like, let's label pain as disease. I think intuitively, people think it makes sense. I don't think it's going to lead to the outcomes that people are hoping for. Yeah, 100%. I mean, even, you know, to, to not hopefully not get too far sidetracked here, but even, you know, I've seen some of the your work on or I guess writings on, you know, like language, how important language is to our discussion of pain. And it's like, fascinating that our descript our experiences are so limited by the, the limited language that we have. So it ends up being yeah. how we have to describe this experience in a way that's so limited versus what we're feeling. Which can yeah. it makes sense why some people struggle to, it's almost like explaining an emotion to somebody, you know, how you feel about someone or something, you know, you have just a limited subset of, of terminology you can use to describe it. And that can be hard. Yeah. And well, and you couple in the medical world, uh, we just pathologize, right? Like that's our linguistic underpinning is I need to look at you under this particular lens. And then how I look at you influences how I think your lived experiences are occurring and what we need to do about them. So that's where we get into models and like biomedicine and biopsychosocial or the inactive approach to lived experiences, which is much more cognitive science rooted. And so if I look at you and I'm like, well, you're having this lived experience because 
do have, uh, you know, spinal degenerative disc disease, then that influences all my recommended interventions. And that's how I talk about you. And so you start adapting those metaphors. Uh, great paper, if people want to get into this stuff, would be by Nilsson. And it's called um, Pain as a Metaphor, I believe is the official title of it. It was 2016. And he kind of goes through this and he's like, you know, pain is what we say it is over time. And it doesn't need to be in this clinical apocalyptical context. And I like that a lot because we're kind of the perceived authorities on this topic, right? Like people seek out healthcare clinicians because they're having this experience they don't understand. So how we talk about it linguistically is going to influence someone's understanding and their behaviors in the future, which is why I kind of harp on language so much. As you guys can tell from this discussion we just had from one myth, there's a lot to pain and there's just like levels and levels and levels and different things that we need to think about. However, let's get back to the myth busting. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, primary persistent pain or the idea of chronic pain. And a lot of times that is related to posture. So is it a myth or a fact that posture and pain are related? Um, I think people can have... I will say that it depends. I think people can have postures that evoke an experience they label as painful. I think what matters, though, is what needs to be done about that experience. And that turns out very straightforward for the most part. Just change positions, move on to the next posture and don't avoid just because you have symptoms that you label as painful in a particular posture or position doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just is. And you just kind of move on and transition. So I don't agree with the clinicians who are like, let me drop a plumb line from your ear down to your malleolus. And if it's not in this completely straight line, then, you know, your spine's going to explode or the world's going to end or you know, whatever your wife's going to leave you or any number of things. Right? So that stuff I disagree with. It's, it's, it's so simple. It's complex. Because what usually happens is people talk to me about those narratives they've been given in clinical practice. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's just not supportive data for that type of stuff. And there's really no reason to demonize postures, positions or movement. And if you're noticing symptoms of a particular posture, then just transition to the next posture you find comfortable. We're not machines. You can't sit in the same position for four hours and think you're suddenly not going to feel differently than you did at hour one. That's just not how we function. And so um, I think once people have that understanding, they start realizing like they're more in control of the situation and, and how to live, uh, live with those experiences a little bit better. Got it. And then similarly to that one, um, there's another idea that if someone has a strength imbalance, that it could lead to either pain or an injury. Is there any validity to that? No, is uh, the short answer to that. So um, usually people hear like, oh, I need to be able to overhead press as much as I lap pull down or, you know, I need to be able to have... Um, I don't know, similar abdominal strength to low back strength. Like I'm so far removed from some of this stuff. I've like started to forget some of the BS narratives people get given. Um, but there's no like validity to say, A, I need to just go screen this. There's no data to say I should be out there just screening this. The only one that I hear people really like want to go after in this context is I want to talk about quad hamstring ratios in the context of ACL tears. And that's an, an entire podcast in itself overall. And I can say of, of all of the risk factors I'm concerned with in those scenarios, that would not be at the, the top of my list, typically speaking. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, and, and you hear so many things, you know, whether it's imbalance in terms of, you know, are your quote unquote pulling muscles, 
the weaker than your quote unquote, like pushing muscles or whatever. Like you hear that terminology with the bros a lot in the gyms and personal trainers and that sort of thing, you know, like, Oh, you should be doing twice as many rows as you, as you are doing like a pressing movement or something like that. But then you also hear yeah. it in terms of like, you know, your Joel Seedman's of the world and your similar folks who, you know, are very, very, very strongly in the corner of, you know, your right quad should be this, just as strong as your left. You shouldn't have any individual muscular deficiencies or quote unquote, like your everything should be as equally strong as the opposite side. Like you shouldn't have a left side that's stronger than your right side. Yeah. Or you shouldn't have a leg that's slightly shorter than another leg. But yeah, definitely, you know, it seems to be like it all kind of gets mixed up into the same idea of like almost like an obsession with our field and symmetry. Like we yeah. everything needs to be, you know, oh your squat, you you lean towards one side when you're squatting, or you know, I so I think something's wrong there. And it's almost like you said, we're over, you know, we're creating pathology where none exists. We're saying, Oh, it's yeah. wrong that you're leaning a little bit on your squat, but in reality, is it like not really? The only time like I so A, um, Derek Miles, my colleague and friend, just released an article on our website on barbellmedicine.com about when symmetry matters. I think it's great. Um, those are the contexts in which I'm like, oh, I probably should look at this, which are things like uh, post-muscle strain. You know, if you have a hamstring strain, acute, like you went out to sprint a 50 meter you weren't ready to do, felt a pop. I look at the back of your thigh. I'm like, yeah, you know, you have bruising and edema. You have decreased range of motion. We're probably going to have to work through this experience for a little bit. Then I think there is validity in testing and seeing on like a, a handheld dynamometer or seeing like a single leg leg curl. What is the strength differences as we're going through this process between left versus right? And I want some symmetry there. Um, we don't have data to be like it's got to be 5%, but somewhere between 10 to 20% is what I would be looking for before I want to like discharge you or advance you to more dynamic type loads that you need to return to. So that would be one area. The other would be like a post-operative situation. Um, I don't get really caught up on normative values for ranges of motion, generally speaking, but post-operative situation, um, I want to see some type of symmetry returns. So like if you're a post-op shoulder case and you're able to do 180 degrees of flexion and abduction on your left arm, but the post-operative case, obviously, depending on time frame from post-op, that's going to be reduced. So I need to return some semblance based on the activities you want to return to. And those are the scenarios in which we have like reasons to look at symmetry the other one would be like a, obviously like a ridiculous radiculopathy situation. Like, are you having a strength deficit that I can measure objectively some way, some type of external resistance applied to you or using a handheld dynamometer that I need to help return some semblance of symmetry too. But those are like clinical contexts. This isn't out in, you know, the fitness world of Instagram and social media in which I watched you squat and I'm like, yeah, man, I think like your front squats less than, I don't know, your overhead press or something. You should do X to be better at what you're doing. <laughs> those things, we don't have any supportive data on. And mm -hmm. a lot of that got popularized by like uh, Poliquin, I think was probably one of the first people who was really like publishing these tables on this stuff. And I don't advise like going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so kind of shifting gears just a little bit, because again, like a lot of these topics could be like, you've mentioned like full podcasts in themselves, which is, is it's hard to stay on a stay a little bit on task with these, these sort of questions. But so in your mind, and again, not giving any specific advice or anything like that, but in a generalization, when does surgery enter the picture in your mind? You know, when does, oh, a, yeah. Yeah, or, or any procedure, when does a procedure enter the equation for someone who's in pain? 
So procedure, could you define that for me? Yeah. So I would say like a physical intervention that would be, you know, I would say including along the lines of injections, you know, surgical procedures, those, anything that's going to be utilizing kind of that, the more physical aspects of, you know, an intervention. So we'll start with, um, injections. It depends, you know, if we're talking like shoulder context, You'll see in the data that you'll see an initial less than eight weeks improvement with the glucocorticoid injection to the shoulder, but the risks haven't been teased out very well. So like we know, especially for tendinopathic stuff, like there's a major risk to injecting glucocorticoid. There's a major risk doing the cortisone injection. And so that would probably not outweigh those perceived initial very minute benefits, especially in the long run because it doesn't set you up for success to realize like what actually matters here beyond the injection, which is like graded exercise exposure, load management, so on and so forth. So a lot of this is going to be context dependent where it's going to be, I say it depends. When you get into things like surgical interventions, it also depends. I can say that at least to me in the U.S. healthcare system, we're much more apt to jump to surgery pretty quickly. And um, like usually when I consult on a case for the first time that was um, post-operatively, I may pull records and see like, well, what was done with this case before they got to me? And I can't count how many times you just won't see any type of conservative management actually tried. Um, like they didn't go get rehab services from a Cairo PT. They didn't go do anything outside of like we educated patient and that was it. And then they came back six weeks later and like, I'm still not feeling great. I'm like, oh, okay, well, we'll just, you know, go do surgery. So I think for generally speaking, I would rather see us shift more towards having levels of intervention. And we obviously, this is talked about and well, people are aware of the levels of interventions. It just seems as though we typically jump pretty quickly to surgery without allowing other things to occur like time and good conservative management, like good personal education, good personal exercise recommendations and load management recommendations, like treating the human in front of you versus jumping straight to surgery. Um, So it's tough. I don't have like a easy, tangible answer to like, uh, you know, surgery needs to be done at the failure of conservative management at 12 weeks. I can also say I've had cases that I've worked with for things like hip hip osteoarthritis. And, um, you know, we worked very diligently for 12 weeks and they were an extremely, and some of them even longer, like six months. And they were very active going into total hip uh, arthroplasty. And they knew that they were going to try to go back to that activity after surgery. I have less of an issue in that context. Like they've consistently embraced the process. They've consistently tried to go a conservative management route and we're just not able to even get them back to the level of functioning they were doing uh, previously before the onset of symptoms. And I'm more okay in that scenario to be like, yeah, you probably are going to respond pretty well to this situation. You can go get that done. And in fact, I've worked with these cases several times and they come out and we have them back to doing the activities they want to do. And sometimes even superseding that activity But the caveat there is they were extremely active going into the surgery, which influences outcomes. So it's it's tough. The individual is a major component of this discussion. Definitely. Um, We've talked a lot about conservative management in that last discussion, how um, oftentimes conservative management and time is kind of all you need when the onset of pain occurs and we're taking a patient back to hopefully a lower level of pain, whether or not that's eliminated. 
the kind of shifting gears a little bit back and focusing it more directly onto the preventive aspect of this. Um, I know you mentioned at the beginning of this entire show that it seems has been like a long education on pain. You mentioned risk reduction. So in terms of pain and just in general, is there a way to, are there like specific things that you can do to reduce your risk of pain um, through maybe like consistent exercise or other things like that? Are there patterns that you've consistently seen that can help reduce that risk of pain and maybe injury even? Uh, just to be a little tongue in cheek, it would just be never have pain. Um, (laughs) the primary prognostic factor, right. Is like prior history of low back pain is the number one prognostic factor, uh, factor for future low back pain. So it's like, what am I supposed to do with that as a clinician? I can't, it's a non-modifiable, right? So modifiable stuff, you know, I think we would be as a country and globally way better off if we as a society prioritize people taking care of themselves, doing things that ensured and society has to set this up. Right. And you see this in behavioral change. Like it's very easy for me to sit in the clinic and be like, yeah, you should be meeting national physical activity guidelines. Yeah. We should probably have some caloric restriction here. Yeah. You should probably be getting better sleep and more quantity of sleep. And you should be doing stress coping things. Like maybe you enjoy meditation or mindfulness, which I'm totally okay with. It's easy for me to say that if society hasn't set up affordances for you to engage those activities and lead that type of life, then we're putting them in a position of just justice because they're not going to actually be capable to go in and act that. So I think it's easy to talk about individual level behavioral change. It's much, much harder for us to talk about societal level change, which I think personally at this point in my career is really where we should be focusing a lot of our attention on is ensuring that we've set up a society that provides these affordances for all to engage in these behaviors that do have positive influence on health and longevity. And so that's where I would want to see like future shift in that regard. At the individual level, it would just be trying to ensure how can I identify barriers and facilitators to engaging those behaviors that we know have positive health benefits. When it relates back to pain, it's difficult because it's a part of the human experience within a society. And so I usually say, if you're doing these things of taking care of yourself uh, as as much as possible within the society you find yourself in, then you're probably going to feel as though you're living a more uh, fulfilled life and more in control of your life. And maybe you have less, less experiences that you label as painful. But I don't typically talk about like prevention in that regard. I don't talk about um, over-focus on reducing the risk because I want them to feel as though once they leave the clinic that if this does occur, which is a high probability as a human being that you're going to have pain again at some point in your life, regardless of what you do, do you have a better understanding of that experience? And do you have responses in place to live with and cope with that experience? Yeah, it's a, that's a fantastic answer. I, I love that. Um, and kind of to, to tie things together and kind of wrap things up for, for what we've got for you today, we like to ask similar to our, you know, what does preventive medicine mean to you question? We ask everybody, if you ran into someone in a coffee shop and they said, oh, hey, that's Dr. Ray. I know him from Instagram. Let me, I want to see, you know, how do I get healthy? So they run up to you and that you're waiting for your coffee. You say, hey, Dr. Ray, how do I get healthy? What's your, what is your two minute elevator pitch for here's how to be healthy? Um, that's a tough one. I would say, you know, I have a timer running by the way. So (laughs) nice. (laughs) Yeah. I would say start being physically active more often than not. And I don't really care what that physical activity is. Preferably you enjoy it because that's going to keep you being active long-term. 
uh, surround yourself with an inner circle of folks that you trust and trust you that you can communicate with and talk about your life. That's going to be huge and feel as though you're supported in your life and your life endeavors, especially when things don't go the way you want. And then I would say, um, you know, make sure you get adequate sleep and uh, both quantity and quality as much as possible and then take in sufficient nutrition based on a diet that you find is able to be adhered to diet as we're all on a diet standpoint, not like you're trying to lose weight diet, but something that you feel as though you can adhere to long-term that lets you live the life you want to lead and meet physical activity goals. Um, and then have coping mechanisms in place for life, whatever that may be. It's probably going to be talking to your social network, but it also could be, you know, reading or meditating or any other you know number of things people like to engage in. Yeah. And, uh, that pretty much summarizes everything. I know you did that much earlier on in the podcast too. So for anyone listening, that's kind of just reinforcement of the topics that I discussed earlier on. Then also everything that we've been talking about here and also just helping become a more robust and resilient person, um, altogether. Um, so we want to thank you for your time. Um, yeah. is there anything that you want to plug or you want people to find you at anything specific? Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram. So just Michael underscore barbell medicine and then Twitter, which is just michael.ray.dc. Uh, Those are kind of the two platforms I'm on the most. And then for anyone listening, we'll have um, his social media all over our own Instagram page. We'll just post them everywhere. And then we will also put them in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can just scroll down, find them right there. It'll be an easy way to do so. Awesome. Yeah. We had a great time. I think, you know, there's so much that we could, we could get, this could be like a 10 hour podcast to be honest. <laughs> we really want it to be, but um, loved having you on. We'd like to have you on again in the future at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, Thank everyone. you so much. This Take is care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.